Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the curious about the latest in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take action that benefit your health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to be joined by our guest, Dr. Marion Nessel, to discuss nutrition and its impact on longevity. Hello, glad to be here. Marion is the Professor Emerita of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. With a PhD in Molecular Biology and an MPH in Public Health, Nutrition from UC Berkeley, she helped found the Nutrition Department at NYU and was the chair from 1988 to 2003. She is the author of a dozen books on nutrition, including award, the award-winning What to Eat and Food Politics, which had its 20th anniversary this year. Her most recent book, a memoir which we'll hear about, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food and Politics, was just released in October. I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host today, our naturopathic doctor, Dr. Natalie Walsh. Natalie, as a resident nutrition expert here at Private Medical, I'd love to pass it on to you to kick off the conversation. Thanks, Jordan. You know, Marion, through your many books and appearances and through blogging and teaching, you've had such widespread influence on really how we think about nutrition and about the food industry. I do want to talk about your new memoir, of course, but I also want to touch on food politics, which came out first in, in 2002. So now with it being the 20-year anniversary What's changed since that book came out 20 years ago? Well, when the book came out, the first question that I was asked was, what does food have to do with politics? I don't get asked that nearly as much anymore. I think people really understand how political food has become, how politics affects food. I think people understand that not having enough to eat and eating too much of the wrong kind of foods and an agricultural system that promotes greenhouse gas emissions is involved with politics. And people even understand the root causes of the political problems in ways that absolutely was not true 20 years ago. For example, 20 years ago, I never mentioned the word capitalism in polite company. And now if I don't say anything about capitalism, people in the audience will jump up and say, but aren't you talking about capitalism? Aren't you talking about what happens as a result of late stage capitalism? And yes. So that's the biggest change. And it's one that's been very gratifying. You know, I really love your message about about voting with your fork, about how all of us as consumers are influencing the food industry through the choices that we we each make about what we what we eat. But I I also know there's this this line between personal responsibility and then you talk so much about industry and food industry responsibility. How do we kind of walk that line as consumers? What's what's the difference between our personal responsibility for our food and how that affects our health and longevity versus others responsibility for our food choices and longevity. Well, the way I like to put it is kind of a mantra, vote with your fork, even better, vote with your vote. Um, and, by, and by vote, 
with your vote, I mean, get involved in the political part too, because it's very clear that when you go to a grocery store and make a choice, you are exercising your personal responsibility in choosing what you're choosing to buy. You're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, and, and those kinds of choices are extremely important and they are responsible for the great interest in plant-based diets, for plant-based food products, for many, many changes that we see in the supermarket. But at the same time, we need to put some resistance against what the food industry is trying to sell us. And I should explain right off the bat that I don't see the food industry as necessarily evil. I see it as just doing what business requires. Food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses. And they have stockholders who are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's profits. And it is an unfortunate fact of life that fruits and vegetables and plant foods are not very profitable. The profits in the food industry are in processed foods, just the kinds of things that we ought to be eating less of. And in fact, the more highly processed a food product is, the worse it is for us and the better it is for the food company's profit line. So that's the problem that individuals have to navigate in trying to figure out what to eat. Everybody needs to make choices based on what you understand, but also what's available, what's affordable, what your friends are eating, um, what the culture tells you you should be eating, what's served to you in institutions, what's advertised on television and social media. I mean, there are so many forces that bear on individual food choice. And if you look up articles about them, I'm always astounded that food industry marketing is almost never mentioned, that food industry marketing is an invisible force in what we eat, and yet it is probably the most powerful one. So as a primary care doctor, you know, how, does, how do you recommend that, that we who are at the forefront or at the tip of the spear of talking to people about their health and their lives, and specifically food, which is so important, like I heard a statement the other day that you can't outrun your mouth. And so there's a lot of people that, that are trying to exercise their way outside of the donut they ate. When you talk about processed food, like, does that mean anything in a package? What are some heuristics that, that we as doctors or even people can use to understand how processed and potentially how bad that is? I don't know what your clinical practice is like, but as a patient, I get to see a doctor for 15 minutes if I'm lucky, and five or 10 of those minutes are going to be spent with him on a computer. He doesn't have time to talk to me about about my diet. A perfect world, we would be discussing at some length why I eat the way I do and the kinds of choices that I make. Those are difficult things to talk about because people are very sensitive about what they eat. So I would say the first thing that a physician should do is have a nutritionist on hand who can deal with that and refer patients who need it to a nutritionist. The second thing is I think dietary advising is very easy. It's so easy that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, and really, that's all there is to it. If you define food as something that's real and not 
highly processed. And that gets us into a concept that is a new concept in nutrition. And I think it's the most important nutrition concept since vitamins. I'm going to use a little hyperbole here. And that's the concept of ultra-processed foods, which was invented in 2009 by a group of public health people at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And they divided foods into four categories, basically unprocessed culinary ingredients like salt, sugar, and oils uh, that are added to foods, uh, minimally processed foods, and then a special category called, which they called ultra-processed. And these are foods that are industrially produced bear no resemblance whatsoever to the foods that they were derived from, cannot be made in home kitchens because you can't buy the ingredients at supermarkets. They're industrially produced. They're enormously profitable for the companies that make them, and the companies that make them design them to be absolutely irresistible. So that the famous ad where you holding up a potato chip where you can't eat just one, it's that kind of irresistibility. And there is now a body of literature that includes probably a thousand studies that link consumption of ultra-processed foods to eating too much, gaining weight, being at higher risk for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and certain forms of cancer. Um, okay, those are correlational studies. Correlation association is not causation, but there is one clinical trial, an extremely well-designed one at the National Institute of Health that put people on ultra-processed diets and then absolutely comparable diets where the foods were not as processed. And this was in a locked metabolic ward, so they couldn't cheat. Um, and the, um, while they were on the ultra-processed diet, they ate more calories than they did when they were on the other kinds of diets, not only more, but 500 calories a day more. An astonishing result. Usually dietary comparisons, they're lucky if they get a 50-calorie difference. This one got 500. And no surprise, they were eating 500 more calories a day. They gained a pound a week while they were on that diet. Now, the interesting thing about, or one of the interesting things, is that the investigators don't know why the subjects ate so much because everything that they asked them about, they couldn't tell any difference. They think maybe it was that they ate faster. They certainly ate more. There was no question about that. But I think even before they understand what it's about, the message is really clear. Uh, you should be telling your patients not to eat ultra-processed foods if they've got metabolic diseases that are related to diet. Um, I mean, that seems really easy to me. Eat more vegetables, eat less of ultra-processed foods. Well, and the other thing that, that comes to mind on the topic of ultra-processed foods is that, I mean, not only do new ultra-processed foods come out all the time that might have, you know, health claims added to them to make us think they're they're not so bad, even if they are ultra-processed. We're even getting into like the rise of cellular agriculture, right? We're in this new era of cellular agriculture where you can get whey that was made by bacteria. And so at least it resembles that previous ingredient, but we know you can't make it at home. It's made through an industrial process. 
Is it is it okay? Is it just another ultra processed thing? I, I think the jury's still out, and we have to wait and see what the research shows. Those products are not on the market yet. Um, we do have experience with plant-based meats. And that experience shows that there was an enormous amount of investor interest in them, especially at the beginning. And that interest seems to have cooled quite a bit. Those products are clearly ultra-processed. They contain about 20 ingredients. And there's no real food in them. It's all a concoction of of, um, industrially produced ingredients. I don't know whether they're healthier. You know, I mean, there's a big push to try to get people to eat less meat because that would be better for health and better for the planet. But does that mean that you have to eat artificial meats as a substitute? I kind of don't get the whole thing because if you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to. It's not essential. And there are plenty of terrific vegetables that, you know, and, uh, you know, and other kinds of um, either animal products or not. It's quite possible to have a healthy diet and not eat meat. But I mean, coming back to vegetables, I I want people to eat all the vegetables. I want them to eat many vegetables. But, you know, people often ask me about organic foods. Does that make a difference? Do all my vegetables and fruits need to be organic? Or does everything I eat need to be organic? Well, I think that's actually an easy question to answer because organics isn't about um, nutritional health. Organics is about planetary health. It's a production method that uses fewer pesticides, doesn't use genetically modified ingredients, and, and doesn't allow the use of sewage sludge as fertilizer. So the issue there is pesticides. I think pesticides are very important, and they're enormously under-researched. I wish we had better research on the health effects of pesticides. It's it's one of those things like climate change and cigarettes that the industry has done everything that it can to prevent doing uh, research and to cast doubt on the research that is that is there. But it's really not about nutrition, and that's why when the organic industry said that they really had to start getting studies that would demonstrate that organic vegetables were more nutritious than than conventionally produced vegetables. I didn't think it was a very good idea to do that. I thought the studies would be too hard to do and that I could predict that um, the organically grown vegetables would have higher mineral content, but the vitamin content would probably be the same because plants make their own vitamins. Um, But the real point is I like the idea of having vegetables with fewer pesticides. I buy organic whenever I can. And I say, if people can afford it, they should. If they can't, it's really okay not to. So can I just push on that a little bit? Which you said pesticides are really important. And do you mean they're important because they're important to understand if they have deleterious effects or they're important because they do enable a lot of food to be produced for a lot of people that provide something versus processed food? I worry about them. I mean, I'm I'm somebody who thinks that the planet would be healthier and people would be healthier if we had an agricultural system that focused on public health rather than corporate health. Our agricultural system is designed to not to produce food for people. It's designed to produce feed for animals 
and fuel for automobiles. Um, and food for humans is a tiny little part of the agricultural system. The subsidies, for example, all go to animal feed and automobile fuel. So I think that needs to change. And if we had a different kind of agricultural system, we would it would be less dependent on pesticides, which are demonstrably help, you know, harmful for wildlife. And even though it's been very difficult to demonstrate that they're demonstrably harmful to uh, humans, I don't see how they could possibly be good. You know, they're poisonous to a whole range of wildlife. And the more that is learned about them, the more questions are, are raised about how healthy they are. And this is also true of a lot of fertilizers. I mean, we're ruining waterways from the fertilizers that run off from agricultural land. You know, they're the fish in the in the the dead zones in Lake Erie and in the Gulf of Mexico, and they're all over the place. I mean, we really need to do something about that. And I don't see how you can separate human health from planetary health. I mean, it seems to me the linkages are so tight, we really can't consider one without the other. Uh, so we need an agricultural system that is kinder to the planet, and I think that system would be healthier for people as well. So to be a, a more conscientious or a consumer who's thinking more about the planet, what are those areas that we can help to build our confidence in as eaters and consumers and know that? hey, what we're getting when we when we make this type of purchase is good for us and good for the planet. Well, the really terrific thing, I mean, the one break that we're all getting is that the diet that is best for the planet is also the diet that is healthiest for people. And this was the subject of two lengthy reports that were published in The Lancet at the beginning of 2019. Uh, one of them was called the Eat Lancet Report that proposed what they called a planetary health diet, and the other was something called the Global Syndemic Report, I wish it had a better title, that talked about the need for diets that did triple duty function. They would prevent hunger, prevent chronic disease, and prevent climate change all at the same time. And that diet is a diet that contains for people in the United States and in industrialized countries, half the amount of meat that is currently being consumed and twice the amount of vegetables. So I will go back to Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. We're, that's a, a description that covers the triple duty. If we had that, uh, we would have policies that um, made it much easier for people who didn't have much money to eat more healthfully. We would have policies that would help people eat healthier so they wouldn't get diet-related chronic diseases. Um, and that would help the planet at the same time. Okay, so if, if, if you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, apples and, and vegetables, and I eat real food, but, you know, for not everybody can live on that diet alone and they do eat stuff that comes in wrappers and boxes and stuff like that. How, how much value do you put on uh, the label uh, on, on and any food? And if, and, and how do you navigate a store? Do you buy stuff in boxes and packages? And if you do like, do you look at the labels and how do you think about that? 
No, I think labels, first of all, they're enormous fun. And and the first thing to know about them is that nobody understands them except for college professors. And, And I say that because when the FDA first developed the current nutrition facts panel. It, it did a lot of focus group testing of various designs for the panel. And I was kind of shocked to discover that nobody understood any of them. And so they picked the one that was the least poorly understood. Um, and so when people tell you that they can't understand food labels, they really can't. Um, and they're very hard to read. And so uh, most people look at either the calories or they look at the sugar. That's what people are looking at these days. I look at the ingredient list um, because the ingredient list is a big giveaway on whether the product is ultra processed or not. Um, I mean, I used to have kind of a facetious thing where don't buy it if it has more than five ingredients, but that's not a bad place to begin. If you've got a product that's got a list of 20 ingredients and you don't know what they are and you can't buy them in your local grocery store, then the food is ultra processed and the chances are you're going to be eating more of it than you probably want to if you think about it or probably should if you're going to be healthy. Some of the things that are on the label are things you're supposed to eat more of and some are things you're supposed to eat less of and you have to know that. So there are too many things to know. That's why there's a big push to try to get a warning label on ultra-processed foods like they have in countries like Chile and Brazil and Colombia has just started one. A lot of countries in Latin America have warning labels um, that are big um, black seals that are put on packages that are too high in salt, sugar, saturated fat, calories, whatever, Um, sometimes artificial sweeteners as well. Uh, and even people who can't read <clears throat> know what know what those symbols mean. Children, and because they focus group tested those symbols on young children and on people who couldn't read, and so you don't need to have a doctorate in molecular biology like I do to be able to read a food label. Well, and and coming back to the question around the causes of obesity, this is something that you've written much about. We just asked about calories, and that that seems to be the the most obvious culprit increase in average calories over time. What else do we know and and not know about obesity? And then maybe how much of that is influenced by the food industry? Well, I think it's 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 enormously complicated. The question that I always start with is up until about 1980 the prevalence of obesity in the United States was relatively constant. It was going up, but it was going up very, very slowly. Between 1980 and 2000, the prevalence of obesity went up dramatically in the United States. Genetics didn't change. Metabolism didn't change. Um, What did change was politics. 1980 was when President Reagan came in, and a lot of things happened as a result of that. There was a lot of deregulatory activity as a result of policies that had started in the 1970s. The the United States started overproducing food enormously, and the number of calories that were available in the food supply for 
every man, woman, and little tiny baby in the country went from about 3,200 per person, which is still way more than anybody needs, to about 4,000 per person during that 20-year period. And I think the reasons for that have a lot to do with the food industry's need to try to sell food in a situation in which the there was an overabundance of calories and selling food was more competitive. And so they, as a matter of, of competitiveness, they made larger portions. Larger portions have more calories. If I had one thing to teach the American public, that's what it would be. I can hardly say it with a straight face. But really, it's not intuitively obvious that larger portions have more calories. They put food where food had never been put before. And the example that I love to use is the New York University Library, which when I came there in 1986, had uh, 88, had signs all over it saying, if you eat here, you're going to be expelled from school. Now it's got cafes and vending machines all over it. Uh, food moved into drugstores. Drugstores look like food stores now. It moved into clothing stores. It moved into every place you could possibly find. There's food everywhere. And we know that if food is in front of you, you will eat it. I certainly will. And so people started eating more. And I think this wasn't out of the, because food industry executives weren't sitting around a table saying, oh, let's see how we can make Americans fat. They were sitting around a table saying, how are we going to sell our products in an environment that's this competitive? You know, the CDC says that 74% of American adults are overweight by standards of the body mass index. That doesn't mean obese necessarily, but they're overweight. That means that overweight is normal. And all you have to do is look at pictures of schoolchildren now and compare them to pictures of schoolchildren 30 years ago. It's a shocking change. And I don't see any government action to try to do anything about it because that would mean taking on the food industry and they can't because they're captured by the food industry. I mean, one of the things that I found so fascinating returning to your memoir is that you came up just at the time that all of this was happening. I love the story of how you actually got into studying nutrition at Brandeis. That was such like a a moment where you had to choose between teaching nutrition or teaching physiology. The fact that you came to NYU, they didn't even have a nutrition department was so fascinating to me. Oh, actually they did. It was, it was buried in home economics. I don't know if, if you'd like to go through some hot topics with us. A few hot topic questions that, that we have are ones that we get frequently asked by, by our members, by our patients. Fire away. <laughs> Fasting. Is it a fad or is it fine? What is, what is the place for it with our health? Fasting is really interesting. You know, there's a, a, an enormous amount has been written about it and it has been extraordinarily well studied. The most important study was done by Ansel Keys during the Second World War. Uh, and he's got a two-volume book on human starvation that really is a an absolutely extraordinary piece of science. We know everything there is to know about fasting. Fasting has been imposed on people, and then people fast because they think it's 
fun or it's going to make them healthy. Um, I turn out to be an intermittent faster without knowing it. That's just the way I eat normally. I'm not very hungry when I wake up in the morning. I don't usually get started eating until 11 or 12. Um, I had no idea that that was intermittent fasting. It works for me. Um, I think the rule is you should eat when you're hungry. And that fasting for uh, short periods of time is not harmful. And it could be helpful to people who have metabolic problems that need to be cooled down. But over the long haul, it's not very much fun. I mean, food is one of life's greatest pleasures. I don't want to deny myself that. Yeah, wanting wanting to have that enjoyment from food is a very, very human thing, right? I also get asked a lot about alcohol. So you've talked about the influence of the alcohol industry on studies, and the more studies that come out, the more the guidelines get revised downward and downward and downward. You know, the World Cancer Research Fund is is definitely coming out and saying there's there's no safe amount of alcohol for cancer prevention. But I'm wondering what you think of that, where it's all going. Well, it, that's another one of those things where I'm not your core customer. I'm one of these people who doesn't metabolize alcohol, so I can hardly drink at all. And anybody who drinks, drinks more than I do. I don't understand the fun of alcohol. I mean, it's just something that I've never experienced. But I certainly know plenty of people who have experienced it. Um, less is better. And, you know, all for a long time, the alcohol industry tried to convince everybody that one or two drinks a day was ideal and that non-drinkers had greater risk of heart disease and other kinds of problems than uh, moderate or heavy drinkers. And uh, that research is not holding up very well. Uh, so I think the science shows that less is better. Um, if you are going to drink, it's best to do it with food so it gets metabolized a little bit more slowly. <laughs> I'm less fun at parties if I share that kind of information. <laughs> yeah, I know. We try to be truth tellers over here in our practice. So, Superfoods. That's another question. What about super duper foods? Do superfoods exist? Super duper foods. It's a marketing term. You know, I mean, remember, food companies have to sell their their products. And even the producers of fruits and vegetables have to sell their products because um, they're competing. They compete with or they think they're competing with each other. So apples are competing with peaches and blueberries are competing with raspberries and on they go. So each of these foods, these are healthy foods, you know, eat whichever ones you like, they're all trying to get research that will show that they have more antioxidants or more of some vitamin or more of something else than another. But the whole key to healthy diets, besides eat food, not too much, mostly plants, is to vary the foods that you're eating. And that's because foods have different combinations of essential nutrients. And if you're eating a wide variety of food, you're going to get them all the nutrients you need and you don't have to worry about it. And so I think the superfood thing is just to try to get you to buy blueberries instead of something else. It doesn't make any sense to me. You should eat the fruits and vegetables you like. They all are superfoods, every one of them. And where do you land on juice? I mean, obviously, if you're drinking apple juice from a from a box, like that's pure sugar, probably really bad for you. Eat the apple. But but now there's all these juice companies that are making these blended juices with, you know, kale and cucumbers and avocados and 
and whatever. If you like them, that they're fine, but you're still better off eating the uh, vegetables or the fruits. The, um, the, the I think the American Academy of Pediatrics is now advising what I was given when I was a child. We had little tiny glasses of orange juice. Um, the oranges were squeezed into the glass, um, which I was given with cod liver oil when I was a kid. It was years before I could eat or drink orange juice again. Um, but they're saying that, you know, no more than eight ounces of any kind of fruit juice a day for a kid and 12 for an adult because of the sugar issue. And sugar never used to be an issue when people weren't eating as much. But because people's portion sizes have increased so much, um, people are eating more. I mean, eight ounce Coca-Cola was never a problem when it was a seven and a half or eight ounces. Nobody had trouble with handling that amount of sugar. It's when it's 16 ounces or 24 ounces that the sugars add up and then you're, you're drinking liquid sugar. Um, and that's a problem if you're eating more calories than you're expending. And most people are. Well, and these are also like pro-cancer diets. It's, I mean, it's never really framed that way, but if you're eating all this processed food and all this sugar in one big bolus, it's, you know, I, I have a guy that I just diagnosed with, with colon cancer as a young guy, and he has some metabolic disease. He's 38, and, you know, we caught it early, and I said, you know what, pal? Um, you, every time you put food in your mouth, you have to ask yourself, is that a pro-cancer food or a not pro-cancer food? And that needs to be the filter with which you look at it. Now, obviously, most people don't think about foods as cancer-causing. They think of smoking as cancer-causing, but, but I do think if you put that lens through everything you put in your mouth, you, you might think twice about you know, eating that extra thing or all that quantity. Well, I think that's the other power of the Michael Pollan semi-haiku, which you eat food not too much, mostly plants. That's cancer preventing too. Um, it's, you know, it's the same diet for preventing heart disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, overall mortality, and bad outcome from COVID-19, as we saw in the last couple of years. I know we, we need to be mindful of time, but what did you have for breakfast or what did you eat today? I'm a berry and uh, unsweetened cereal person. That's that's how I start most days. Um, and then the rest of it is whatever I wander around and happen to find. I happen to like, I follow my own advice without very much trouble. Um, I do eat pro ultra processed foods. I just try not to eat too much of them. And the um, I'm pretty flexible in what I eat. I don't worry about it. I actually don't think about it very much. I kind of like vegetables. That makes it easier. But, you know, that's just who I am. I don't expect everybody else to be like that. And I have great sympathy for people who aren't and are trying to convert. Well, for anybody who hasn't read her memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. I strongly recommend you go out and read it. It's a great read. Eat it with an apple, no processed foods. Thanks, Mary. It was so special to chat with you. Thanks very much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope to have inspired you to think a bit differently about your health 
and the healthcare system. Until next time.